Hi, friends. I'm Tierney. I'm Katie. And I'm Shelby. And we're dead Dead motherfucking drunk. (laughs) Here we go. tell you about the Iceman. <laughs> that was the most incredible impression I've ever heard. Honestly, I'm sorry. Are we sitting with the Sopranos? Or? Yeah. Wow. Is Iceman right here? No. He'd be dead! Because he was an Italian. Oh. We'll get there. All right. Well. <laughs> yeah, so today we're going to talk about the Iceman, Richard Kuklinski. But before we talk about that, we have to talk about our Ice Manhattan. I love that pun. Thank you. (laughs) That was amazing. All right. So, Katie, you want to tell us about the drink? What you going to do is... I can't do an Italian accent, guys. (laughs) So, you're going to crush up some ice. What we did is we made it kind of like a snowy type thing. You can just pop it in a blender and get it all iced up. Like a snow cone. So, you take some bourbon. You pop some of that in. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Then what you're going to do is you're going to grab some sweet vermouth. You're going to put just a tad of that in. By tad, I mean one ounce. (laughs) (laughs) And then you're going to add some uh, bitters. You're going to add a few dashes, like two or three. I think I added four, but fuck it. (laughs) As many dashes as you want. Mm -hmm. And then I can't say this word, but maraschino. 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 Cherry. Did you say maraschino? Maraschino. I is love that the, is that the put... Italiano way? No, probably Mozzarella not. Mozzarella. Um... I love marshmallow. Like, fun fact, <laughs> when I used to work at Dunkin' Donuts, people used to come through the uh, the drive-thru at like six in the morning and they'd be like, yeah, um, can I have a ham and cheese on a croissant? <laughs> what? Because, because there are those words that people like think they have to say. Like with um, an accent? Like that. Like people do it for like Italian a lot. We digress. Shelby, you want to tell us about Iceman? Yeah, we're going to get down to the story. So Richard Kuklinski was born on April 11th, 1935 in his family's 4th Street, Jersey City, New Jersey apartment to his parents, Stanislaw Stanley Kuklinski, a Jewish-Polish immigrant who worked as a brakeman on the Delaware, Lackawanna, and Western Railroad, and Anna McNally, a daughter of Catholic Irish immigrants from Dublin who worked at a meatpacking plant. Pretty much from the get-go, it was an abusive household. His father was an alcoholic and repeatedly beat him throughout his childhood, while his mother, although I couldn't find anywhere where it said she might be an alcoholic, but I would assume, she also hit him with broom handles or whatever other household objects she might come across. Despite this abuse... She insisted on raising them Catholic, so Kuklinski would serve as an altar boy throughout his youth, although he would later reject Catholicism. So, so obviously. (laughs) He actually recalled during an interview with forensic psychiatrist Dr. Park Dietz that his mother once attempted to murder his father with a kitchen knife when he was a preteen. Kuklinski had three siblings. Florian, his older brother, died at the age of eight, from injuries that they told the police were from a fall down the stairs, but were actually from a pretty violent beating from his father. It's never that somebody fell down the stairs. 
Luckily for our boy Richard, his father then abandoned the family. Kuklinski was the second son. He then had a younger sister, Roberta, and a younger brother, Joseph, who was convicted in 1970 for raping a 12-year-old girl and then throwing her and her pet dog off the top of a five-story building. What is with this family? This is like Well, Richard would say they had the same father. Trigger warning, he was pretty cruel to animals. In his early youth, his cruelty to animals was primarily with cats. He would tie their tails together with rope and then throw them over the clothing lines to watch them fight each other, which is pretty inventive, but also terrible. And then he would throw the living cats into an incinerator and then kind of watch them like a Sweeney Todd kind of thing. He would imagine that these animals were his father. Can we cheers to the animals? Yeah. God bless them all. In heaven. Now we're going to get into the killing of people. Oh, love that. In 1948, at the young age of 13, Richard Kuklinski graduated to murder. He ambushed a teenage gang leader who had been bullying him and teasing him, named Charlie Lane. More like Charlie Lane. Oh, wow, 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 wow. (laughs) Pew, pew, pew. Kuklinski allegedly used a thick wooden hanging rod to beat this kid to death. He then stole a car, again, the age of 13, and drove the body to a remote South Jersey pond. Then he hacked off Charlie's fingers with a hatchet, knocked his teeth out, and dumped the body into the pond. It's Yeah, it's, it seems very calculated for... Was this his first murder? Or is this... Supposedly. Was that's this... what he claims is his first murder. I'm, I don't know. It just seems like somebody that would be that calculated would have killed before. Or maybe have helped with it or have seen it. That's my I mean, kind of thing. But like, I definitely agree with you. After hearing about this family, you never know. <laughs> yeah, 100%. He later described this experience as empowering. And it kind of taught him that he had a special skill in life. Later, he individually tracked down the other members of Charlie's gang called the Project Boys and beat them within an inch of their life. I'm sorry, the Project Boys? (laughs) Were they on the X Factor? That is incredibly lame, but also really fucked up and kind of like psychotic that he tracked them down one by one. Oh, I thought you were going to say it was fucked up that they called themselves the Project (laughs) Boys. Kuklinski dropped out of school in the eighth grade and over the next 10 years would hone his talent for killing. He formed his own gang called the Coming Up Roses. I hate that. All the names are not good unless they are the last name of your Italian family. It literally sounds like a horse at the racetrack. Despite their name (laughs) and them being from Jersey, they quickly established a reputation as a crew not to be fucked with. He started by... Robbing people, hijacking trucks, and selling pornographic film. Pornographic films. Floam. Floam. Remember Floam? The like <laughs> pornographic Floam. <laughs> the like slime that had the beads, like the original slime. Yes, but pornographic Floam would just be Floam in the shape of a penis. <laughs> that couldn't go in anyway. Guys, what did you guys make with your Floam? <laughs> Nothing. Oh. I would mash it together. Like. <laughs> By the mid-1950s, he earned a reputation for himself as an explosive pool shark who would beat or kill anyone who annoyed him. Beginning in the spring of 1954, Kuklinski began visiting Hell's Kitchen, 
a neighborhood on the west side of Midtown Manhattan. So we would travel over from New Jersey numerous times. And according to Philip Carlo, who wrote his biography, he killed people, always men, never a female, he says, always someone who rubbed him the wrong way for some imagined or extremely slight reason. I mean, I've definitely gotten annoyed because people don't say thank you when I hold the door, but I've never thought to like actually murder them. But it sounds like this guy would... uh... Yeah, probably. I'd do that. Throughout these killings, he he killed a bunch of people, including, according to Carlo, an off-duty policeman who accused him of cheating at pool, members of his own gang, and homeless men whom he killed simply because he enjoyed it. These killings he did in multiple different ways. According to Carlo again, he shot, stabbed, and bludgeoned his victims to death. He left some right where they dropped, He dumped some into the nearby Hudson River. Murder, for Richard, became sport. And he was the best athlete. So I feel like this also is kind of like not typical of a serial killer. Because I feel like usually when we see like multiple murders happening, it's usually in the same way or they have some kind of pattern. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that he kill them all different ways yes this is the really interesting part i found about richard kuklinski because he really treated it as something that he could perfect so here are a few different instances that he's talked about he once shot a stranger in the head with a crossbow just to see if it was an effective murder weapon while driving around the city kuklinski stopped to ask a stranger for directions he then used the crossbow to shoot the man in the forehead the arrow according to kuklinski went halfway through his head, which proved that it was an effective murder weapon, although not as effective as some other methods. Mm. In another instance, to get revenge on a man who had reportedly disrespected him in a bar, we're not sure in what way, Kuklinski waited until the man went outside and fell asleep in his car. He then tossed a lit gasoline can into the car and burned the man alive. Imagine women did that every time they were disrespected at a bar. We start doing that. There would be no more men in (laughs) the No. Again, according to his biographer, Philip Carlo, the New York police came to believe that the bums were attacking and killing one another, never suspecting that a full-fledged serial killer from Jersey City was coming over to Manhattan's west side for the purpose of killing people to practice and perfect the craft of murder. Kuklinski later said about this time, or about his murders. That by now, you know what I liked most was the hunt. Oh, you know what? Hold on. I can do that better for you guys. <clears throat> I'm ready. By now, you know what I liked most was the hunt. What the The heck? challenge of what the thing was. The killing for me was secondary. I got no rise as such out of it, for the most part. But the figuring it out, the challenge, the stalking, and doing it right, successfully. That excited me a lot. The greater the odds against me, the more juice I got out of it. And the Oscar goes too. <laughs> so over the course of the 50s, way before the mob recruited him, well, not way, they're coming. Way before they got to him, Kuklinski estimates that he had already murdered 65 men. Oh. Oh. You know, that's like... Chump change. 65? Not even close. Yeah, no. Just doubles Ted Bundy's supposed body count. Yeah. Oh, God. At this point in his life, Kuklinski is still working odd jobs to make a living. 
one of which is at the Swiftline Trucking Company. While working on the Swiftline loading deck in New Jersey in 1960, Kuklinski meets his future second wife, Barbara Pedrici. As you can guess, she's Italian. Barbara is working as a secretary for the New Jersey Trucking Company. Kuklinski is married to his first wife at the time where he meets Barbara, who's nine years older than him. They had two sons. Kuklinski had once sliced off that wife's nipples during a violent attack. Excuse me? Mm, Yeah. Despite this and the age difference between him and Barbara, he's 25 at this time and Barbara's 18. Barbara agrees to go out with him on a double date. According to Barbara, he was a perfect gentleman. We went to the movies and then we went for pizza and he got up and played Save the Last Dance for Me on the jukebox. The next morning... He turned up at her house with flowers and a gift. And she says, and that was the end. But unfortunately, it wasn't. Kuklinski fell madly in love with her and managed to win her affections, ultimately taking her virginity. As things grew more serious, though, Barbara worried that she was spending all of her time with Kuklinski and felt cut off from her family and her friends. When she told him that she wanted some space, Kuklinski put a hunting knife he keeps strapped to his leg in her back. He told her that she belonged to him and that if she tried to leave, he would kill her entire family. When she started screaming at him in anger, he choked her into unconsciousness, which again is not okay. Oh my God. Yes. Ew. The next day, Richard met her after work with flowers and a teddy bear. He apologized and told her he wanted to marry her. Barbara, being young and inexperienced, don't say it, believed him and agreed to marry him in 1962. Although, Grohl didn't really have many options. He would kill her. She says, That was the worst day of my life. I should have thrown myself in the ocean and drowned rather than marry Richard. Fuck. She said it was like she was married to two different men. When he was the good Richard, he couldn't have been nicer, more giving, and considerate. When he was the bad Richard, he was the meanest bastard on the face of the earth. If you're in a relationship and you describe it as when we're good, we're so good. But when we're bad, we're so bad. Get out. That's a toxic relationship and it's only going to get worse. And that's a key example. (laughs) Kuklinski continued to suffer from fits of anger and rage in which he would beat Barbara. He broke her ribs, he blackened her eyes, and tore their house apart on more than one occasion. These beatings reportedly caused two miscarriages, which led Barbara to finally flee New Jersey once she got pregnant for the third time. But her mother, being super Italian, told Kuklinski where she was hiding because apparently she didn't want her daughter to raise her child alone. Oh... Did the mom, like, know that all this was going on? Yes, but in a traditional Italian family, it's more important what the outside world thinks of you than what your family, you know. Despite having to go back to him, she did give birth to their first daughter, Merrick, in 1964. She told him she'd kill him if he ever hurt their baby. Good for you, girl. Not long after that, she gave birth to their second girl, Kristen, and four years later, their son, Dwayne. At first, Kuklinski appeared to go straight, seemingly changed after the birth of his children and his first, Merrick, and favorite child. He took work in a film lab, but after a while, he started bootlegging copies to sell for a profit, like Disney cartoons at first, 
And then later he got back to pornography. Of course. Then Kuklinski began making extra money hijacking trucks. With one of his biggest scores being a shipment of stolen jeans that he fenced for $12,000. Barbara never asked where the money came from. According to her, Richard didn't like questions and was savage and unpredictable, even when in an apparent good mood. With that extra money, though, the family of five moves into a big house at 169 Sunset Street. Once Kuklinski was in with the mafia families, they never struggled, as he made at least five figures for every hit he carried out for them. Wow. What a good job, honestly. We'll get there. Once after a successful murder, Kuklinski, apparently, treated Barbara to the best restaurants, arranging for roses to be at their table, her favorite wine to be chilling, and her most loved Kenny Rogers music playing. He was very thoughtful. Yeah, what a great guy. (laughs) Throughout his life, Kuklinski's neighbors thought that he was a successful businessman. They had no idea of his actions, despite the fact that Kuklinski left the house at any time of the day or night. Not suspicious at all. So he would just come back, be covered in blood at like 3 a.m. He'd be like, howdy, neighbors. And his neighbor would just be like, howdy, Richard. How you doing, dick? (laughs) (laughs) You sound like Ned Flanders. (laughs) Howdy, neighbor. (laughs) How do you do it? I bet he wasn't covered in blood. But he did regularly host his neighbors for barbecues. He just appeared as a normal family man. It was like regular barbecues, right? Mm Mm-hmm. No. No, he didn't eat people. Thank Is that God. what you're insinuating? I mean, he was Satan. Right. <laughs> but he wasn't hungry. He had food. Oh, that's good. One mm. Christmas Eve, Kuklinski was busy with the fatherly duty of setting up the toys under the tree mm. when a call came in and he had to go to work. Kuklinski then found mobster Bruno Latini sitting in his snow-covered parked car. He got in the passenger side and shot Latini in the head. Oh. The flash and loud bang from the gunshot temporarily left Kuklinski blind, and deaf. But once he regained his senses, he collected the money Latini owed from him, which was not all the money he had on him. He only took what he was owed. And returned home to finish setting up the kids' presents. You know, just business as usual. It's Mm -hmm. fine. Although he didn't hit the children, but he hit Barbara. He made examples for them out of his wife, as I just said, and Katie, take your earbuds out. The family pets. Merrick says, I was late coming home once, and he took Princess and broke her neck. Princess was a Samoan, not a small dog. He said I would never be late again, and I wasn't. She says that her father killed at least three of the family's pet dogs. Merrick also says that he would boast, You know who you're messing with? I am a hitman for the mob. (laughs) Well... I don't like him very much. I just have to say, he's not what? a good guy. Father of the year! <laughs> Ugh, I feel so bad. Obviously not, guys. Like, imagine... Uh, like, your father's the one that's supposed to make you feel safe. You know what I mean? As, a, as a, like, a child. And then... Yeah, these are memories from his favorite child. So, as I hinted at earlier, his proclivity for murder attracted the attention of the mob. But since Kuklinski is Polish, he could never be a maid member of the Italian mob. A maid member means that they are a male of full Italian descent. Ah. Uh, mm-hmm. So he's Wait. not Italian. 
So that brings us to Roy DeMeo, a soldato or soldier for the Gambino crime family. He met Kuklinski because Kuklinski owed one of his men some money and they went to beat him up and collect that outstanding debt. But DeMeo remembers being impressed by how the Polak, I don't approve of that word, but that's what they call him, took the beating like a man. In 1965, after Kuklinski had finally repaid the debt, DeMeo decided to test Kuklinski and drive him to a city street one afternoon. DeMeo randomly picked out a man walking his dog and told Kuklinski to kill him. Without a word, he got out of the car and shot the man in the back of the head. Oh. Yeah, that poor dog walked home I was home about alone. to say that poor dog. Mm-hmm. I'm happy he didn't kill the dog. Though. I know. Roy says... He was impressed by how efficiently and unquestioningly Kuklinski killed a random man on the sidewalk. That's how Kuklinski started working with the Gambino crime family. Love that journey for him. The problem with hiring a person like Kuklinski is that they're too eager to kill people. So he wasn't really great at money collecting, which made him the perfect person to fill the role of enforcer and the family's designated contract killer. He had only one rule, as you've heard before, no women and no children, although he has no qualms about beating them and scarring them for the rest of their life. At first, the mafia men referred to Kuklinski as the Polak, purely based on his heritage. Then he became known as the one-man army because he was 6'5 and 270 pounds. That's a big man. Mm-hmm. Then his fellow mafiosos began referring to him as the devil himself. See, I told you he was Satan. Throughout the 1970s, the seven families of the East Coast Mafia kept him in constant employment, including the D. Cavalcantes, who were the inspiration for the Sopranos in New Jersey, and the Gambinos, the Lucchesis, Lucchesis, probably, and the Bonanos. Unfortunately, he upset mob boss's friend's wife yeah remind me never to <laughs> never to upset the mob i don't know i would just suggest never getting involved with anybody in the mob ever but guys i didn't even get to the murder yet wait oh fantastic <laughs> don't you want to hear how he did it of course kuklinski abducted the salesman on a test drive knocking him out with one punch then he hogtied him gagged him and put him in the trunk then Kuklinski drove him to the woods, tied him to a tree, and then chopped through his ankles and knees with a hatchet. Okay. All right. Then he cut off the man's fingers one at a time. I believe originally intending to bring them back as the souvenir that Genovese asked for. But later, he walked into Genovese's home with the salesman's head in a plastic bag. Oh, he was like, the fingers aren't enough. I'm going to bring him his head. Yeah, I'm guessing. When the mafia needed a senior member to die, this is the guy they called. Kuklinski claims he was responsible for the murder of the notoriously corrupt Teamsters union head, Jimmy Hoffa, who disappeared without a trace one afternoon in 1975, for which he was paid $40,000. According to Kuklinski, Hoffa's body was placed in a drum and set on fire for about a half hour or so. Then it was welded shut, and buried in a junkyard. This is like really a lot. Fucked up. But wait. Later, 
When an accomplice started talking to authorities, they feared the body would be discovered, so the drum was dug up, placed in the trunk of a car, and compacted to a four-by-two-foot rectangular prison. It was then sold as scrap metal and shipped off to Japan to be used in the making of new cars. In 1979, on DeMeo's orders, Kruklinski hit mafia boss Carmine Galante, head of the Bonanno family. According to his biographer, he calmly ate a sandwich before walking in and emptying two guns into Galante and his bodyguard. That's a little excessive. Well, he was hungry. Oh, do you mean the two guns, <laughs> not the, the sandwich? Guns. <laughs> the next day, Kuklinski drove his family down to Disney World singing, I want to hold your hand without a care. I want to hold your hand. That one? Yeah, but picture him doing it. Creepy. Yeah. <laughs> Kuklinski became known for thoroughly disposing of his victims by, like we've talked about, removing their teeth and their fingers or dumping them off bridges, in rivers, or down mine shafts. His methods for killing included guns, ice picks, hand grenades, crossbows, chainsaws, tire irons, fire strangulation, feeding people to rats, barehanded beatings, and, and a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> yeah, there you go. In one instance, Kuklinski shot a man in the butt with a tranquilizer. The man then woke up in a cave with his arms bleeding and staked to the ground and a camera facing him. Huh, how fun. Two days later, when Kuklinski returned, there was only a stain on the cave floor. Hmm. Ted DeMeo, a ruthless murderer himself and one of Roy's family members, couldn't finish watching the footage and said that Kuklinski had no soul. The footage was of this man being eaten by those cave rats. Oh, I couldn't mm -hmm. figure out what happened to him. I'm like, where did he go? Yeah, he left him for two days for the rats to eat. Those must have been giant rats. They were cave rats. Yeah, yeah but like, what is a cave rat? They're probably out there eating like baby coyotes and uh -huh. things that can't make it. Like they broke their legs, something like that. They're eating pretty big things. And yeah. he filmed him getting eaten? He mm -hmm. had to in order to collect the reward, as there was nothing left of him. Holy moly macaroni. On another occasion, Kuklinski was preparing to kill a man who was begging and praying for his life. Kuklinski says, and if you want, I can go into my acting voice. I would like that. It was a man, and he was begging and pleading and praying, I guess. And he pleased God and all over the place. So I told him he could have a half an hour to pray to God. And if God could come down and change the circumstances, he'd had that time. But God never showed up, and he never changed the circumstances. And that was that. It wasn't too nice. That's one thing I shouldn't have done that one. I shouldn't have done it that way. Fuck. So, so does he regret it, or...? This is one of the only instances in which he shows remorse. Huh. But not for the murder. For, for the way he did it. After all of those different methods of murder, though, he found his favorite. It was cyanide, which he took to carrying in a nasal spray bottle, as it, according to him, killed quickly and was harder for toxicology tests to detect. Fuck. Kuklinski would put the cyanide in a person's food, spray them with it, or simply spill it onto their skin. He learned all of these methods of using cyanide from fellow hitman Richard Prong, who was known as 
Mr. Softy because he drove an ice cream truck as his cover. Remind me never to get any ice cream from the ice cream truck ever again. Because you always hear what? stories about like, oh, Mr. Dingling, like this and that. Is that what they call it for where you guys are? Like where you grew up, Mr. Dingling? Mr. Dingling? No, no, I think I always knew it as Mr. Softy, or my oh. parents referred to it as Mr. Softy. Well, in Albany, it was Mr. Dingling, which Maybe is Maybe you should call the cops. <laughs> um, <laughs> that feels wrong. For one hit in the 70s, Kuklinski dressed up in a flamboyant yellow outfit to pose as a gay man at a New York City disco. When he got close enough to his intended mark, he injected him with a substance that immediately gave him a fatal heart attack. Huh. What kind of substance is this? I really don't have any idea. And this is just one of... How did he of... get it? I, well, guess, I guess we shouldn't question him. He In working for the mob, I would imagine that they would provide him with a lot of different things. He earned the nickname the Iceman because of his method of freezing his victims' corpses in an industrial freezer to hide the actual time of death, huh. with, which he also learned from Ice Cream Man, Mr. Softy. That's like a lot. Like, I've heard of people putting victims in freezers because they like don't know what to do with their bodies, but he literally just put them there to like hide their time. Like, it's so calculated. Everything he does mm -hmm. is like with so much purpose. It's crazy. He like literally is a professional. Oh, yeah. Crazy. In the early 1980s, after nearly 30 years of killing for the mafia families of Manhattan, Kuklinski decided to start his own crime ring and come up with new ways to murder for profit. Because he didn't have enough ways to murder already? He just wanted to perfect it. This was his thing. This was probably the only thing he was good at. Mm -hmm. You know, besides scarring people mentally and physically. Mm. Yeah, he's pretty good at that too. Although now, a murderer in his 50s, he was starting to get sloppy with his methods. February 5th, 1980, the body of George Maliband is discovered inside a steel drum. Okay, hold up. So, were any of the victims of Iceman found before now? Well, yes, if he would leave them right on the street. But because he was so good at disposing of his victims, I don't think they really picked up a trail until now. Okay, so they found them, but they didn't know that it was necessarily him. Mm -hmm. okay. No connection whatsoever, because they were all so different, huh? Yeah. George Maliband worked with Kuklinski bootlegging pornography tapes, which is just one of his favorite things. Apparently. On January 31st, 1980, Maliband reportedly infuriated Kuklinski by showing up unannounced at his family home, violating Kuklinski's strict separation of family and business. When Kuklinski expressed this anger, Maliband threatened to kill his family, so Kuklinski shot him five times, oh. killing him. Same, honestly. <laughs> he then stuffed Maliband's 300-pound corpse into a steel drum and threw it off a cliff. Wow, this guy's got muscles. When asked later why Maliband was murdered, Kuklinski grinned slightly and said, He outlived his usefulness. It's a bad out of like, he just does not view any of these people as humans. No. Like, they're all just, like, part of, like, it's his world and they're living in it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you mess up, he can take you right out. Our next victim, Louis Mazgay, was last seen in July 1981 on his way to a videotape business deal with Kuklinski. Probably also pornography. <laughs> on September 25th, 1983... The body of Louis Mazgay is discovered near a town park of Clossland Mountain Road in Orangetown, New York, 
with a bullet hole in the back of his head. The Rockland County Medical Examiner discovered ice crystals in Mazgay's heart, which meant that Kuklinski had stored the body in an industrial freezer and led authorities to give him the nickname Iceman. I just got full body chills. Kuklinski had actually shot Louis Mazgay in the back of the head two years earlier. What? Oh my God. And put the corpse in a freezer to disguise the time of death, as he had many times before. So he was in the freezer for two years, and then on this day, he just decided that he was going to, like, dump him Mm -hmm. off? Okay. Interesting. I've been there. This time, however, Kuklinski neglected to let the body thaw completely before dumping it. The medical examiner had stated that had it not been for this mistake, they probably would have never noticed this trickery. So they really would have thought that he was killed that day. Mm-hmm. So that brings us to our third victim that they can connect him to, Paul Hoffman. On the afternoon of April 29th, 1982, pharmacist Paul Hoffman met Kuklinski at a warehouse that Kuklinski rented in the hopes of purchasing large quantities of tagament, which is a popular drug used to treat peptic ulcers. He was going to buy it at a low cost from Kuklinski and then resell it at a higher cost in his pharmacy. Make a little moolah. After After Hoffman gave Kuklinski the $25,000, he told the pharmacist that the deal was a ploy, placed a pistol under his chin, and pulled the trigger. Ooh, that's fucked up. Yeah, he didn't even really give him time to process it. The initial shot didn't kill Hoffman, so he tried to shoot again. But when the gun jammed, Kuklinski resolved to beating Hoffman to death with a tire iron. Oh, my God. That gives me a headache. Literally. <laughs> I just don't want to be shot in the head, all right? Okay. I feel like that's... I won't do that to you. Thank you. Kuklinski then put Hoffman's body in a 50-gallon drum and left it on a sidewalk outside a motel and luncheonette called Harry's Corner in South Hackensack, New Jersey. In order to watch the drum, Kuklinski sat in Harry's Corner every day. He would listen to the cafe patrons for any talk that would indicate the discovery of what was in the drum. After what Kuklinski considered to be a long time, which could be anything. I don't know what he considered long. 30 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) The drum disappeared, and as far as he could tell, no one had discovered the body. Okay, so somebody just took the drum? That's what I get from the story, yeah. His body is eventually discovered. So I would imagine that it was picked up by maybe garbage people or you maybe know. someone actually called the police. Yeah. On December 23rd, 1982, Kuklinski and collaborator Daniel Deppner go to meet with Gary Smith, who they used to run car theft scams with, in room 31 of the York Motel. Kuklinski and Deppner feed Smith a cyanide-laced hamburger. That's fucked but up. Yum. It takes a little too long for Kuklinski. So he orders Deppner to strangle Smith with a lamp cord. Uh, what like, do you mean? While like he's still eating, all... like he's a slow eater, and so he's like, "Fuck this!" Like, I'm no, I think he it. ate the full hamburger and ingested the cyanide. And Kuklinski thought, "Well, this isn't going as quickly as I thought it should go. Can you handle this?" Wow. So after Smith was dead, the two called Deppner's ex-wife to come and help them remove the body, what the fuck? but she didn't show up with the car. I mean, yeah, I feel that. It's his ex-fucking wife. So the two men placed it between the mattress and the box spring of room 31. Over the next four days, 
quite a few patrons rent the room. And while they think the room has an odd smell, no one thought to look under the bed. I hate that. Um, yeah, you should always check the beds. Always. I'm never just going to stay in a hotel um, or Now hotel. I don't want to check the beds because what if I find a dead body? I don't understand how people Would wouldn't you rather feel sleep that. On, it? on December 27th, 1982, Gary Smith's decomposing body is finally discovered. And according to forensic pathologist Michael Baden, it would have been considered a non-homicidal death, such as drug overdose, had Kuklinski relied on the cyanide. But the ligature marks on Smith's neck proved it was murder. Idiot. So if he had had just a smidgen more patience, he would have got away with that one. January 10th, 1983. Over the course of their lengthy criminal relationship... DeMeo had threatened Kuklinski's life at least three times. If you'll remember, Roy DeMeo is the one who involved Kuklinski in the mob in the first place. Right. In addition to threatening his life, he had taken to humiliating him in front of his Gemini lounge crew. And for these personal insults, Kuklinski vowed to take revenge on him. Gambino boss Paul Castellano put out a hit on Roy DeMeo because the FBI were closing in on him. The Gotti brothers, John and Jean, were first asked to take out DeMeo, but they refused out of fear of retaliation from DeMeo's loyal soldiers. Eventually, Castellano ordered those loyal soldiers to carry out the killing, but before they could do it, Roy DeMeo met with Richard Kuklinski for a last-minute business meeting. Kuklinski then shot him in his own Cadillac and shoved his body in the trunk with a lamp from his backseat. The best part is that there was money out on his head, and Kuklinski didn't know. He didn't get it. On May 14th, 1983, the body of Daniel Deppner, who, if you'll remember, helped him kill Gary Smith, is discovered by a cyclist riding down Clinton Road in a wooded area of West Milford, New Jersey. Kuklinski had put the body in green garbage bags before dumping it there for the turkey vultures to pick up. Investigators noted that Deppner's corpse was found just over three miles away from a ranch where Kuklinski and his family often went horseback riding. He is the third business associate of Kuklinski's to have been found dead. So he just had a lot of friends, huh? Had a lot of friends going missing. In 1984, fellow hitman Robert Prong, or Mr. Softy, if you'll remember, approaches Kuklinski with a job. Prong allegedly asked him to carry out a hit on his own wife and child, which went against Kuklinski's stated code. Prong was found dead in his truck, fatally shot. On December 16, 1985, Kuklinski was a part of the hit squad who shot down Gambino Don, Paul Castellano. Led by John Gotti, Kuklinski and the rest of the hit squad wait near the entrance to Sparks Steakhouse in Midtown Manhattan, where Castellano and his former bodyguard, who is now the new Gambino underboss, Thomas Bellotti, were heading to an early evening meeting. As Castellano was exiting the car at the front of the restaurant, the gunman ran up and shot him several times. Bellotti was shot as he exited the driver's door. Two weeks later, a meeting of the mafia capos in Manhattan named John Gotti, the new Gambino boss. Ooh, dum bum bum. In 1985, at around this time, a division of the New Jersey Criminal Justice Department created a task force composed of federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies nicknamed Operation Iceman, dedicated to arresting and convicting Richard Kuklinski. I feel like that's such a good title, Operation Iceman. It's really intense. I really like it a lot. 
The task force based their case almost entirely on the testimony of undercover agent Dominic Polifrone and the evidence collected by New Jersey police detective Pat Kane. Agent Polifrone arranged to meet Kuklinski through mafia informant Phil Solomine, who is at this point the only friend that Kuklinski has not killed. Oh, how nice. Besties. Is he next? <laughs> he should have been. Well, if he was going to get away with it. Mm. Polifrone posed as another hitman named Dominic Michael Provenzano and told Kuklinski that he wanted to hire him to hit a wealthy Jewish associate in a cocaine deal robbery, then recorded Kuklinski speaking in detail about how he would carry out the murder. Oh, fuck. oh shit. On December 17th, 1986, a meeting was arranged for Kuklinski to meet Polifrone to get cyanide for his next planned murder, which was an attempt on an undercover police detective. After being recorded by Agent Polifrone, Kuklinski went for a walk and decided to test Polifrone's cyanide on a stray dog, yeah. using a hamburger as bait. When the dog didn't die, he realized it wasn't poison and went home instead of going through with his murder plot. So... Do you think that he was kind of on to him? Like he thought that he might be an undercover agent? I'm not sure at that point. Mm -hmm. He might have just thought that this guy gave him the wrong thing and mm -hmm. had decided that next time he saw this guy, he was going to murder him. Yeah, this guy's super brave to be dealing this close with this guy that's killed so many people. Well, regardless of what his thinking was, two hours later, Kruklinski and his wife were stopped at a roadblock that was set up just a block away from their Sunset Street home while the couple was on their way to breakfast. When a gun was discovered in the car, the sirens wailed and the helicopters descended and both Kuklinski and his wife were thrown to the ground and put in handcuffs. Kuklinski was placed under arrest while Barbara was arrested and charged with trying to prevent his arrest. Detective Pat Kane told her, Richard is a murderer. To which she thought, I was married to a monster and I didn't know it. I knew he had a bad temper could be violent, but had no idea of who he really was and what he was really about. I felt like I'd been hit by a lightning bolt. His younger daughter, Chris, had said, I always knew he could be mean, but I never imagined he was a cold-blooded monster, a hitman for the mafia. What did they think he did? I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. They might, just like the neighbors, have thought that he was a businessman or did yeah. something that they couldn't fully grasp. Mm -hmm. Or it was... Too afraid to even ask questions and just hope for the best. It's like know? some Breaking Bad shit. Mm -hmm. yeah. His oldest daughter, Merrick, and as I mentioned, his favorite, had known that Kuklinski was a murderer, as he would confide in her about his criminal exploits. One night, according to Merrick, he told her that if he ever lost control and killed their mother, he would have to kill them too. Merrick, as a young girl, told him she understood. What? Oh my fucking God. Well, I would have said anything at that point to get my father out of my room. You kidding yeah, me? Yeah, true. What the fuck? I would move away as far as I could. Over the next few hours after the arrest, police entered the house with a warrant, expecting to find stashes of weapons, but found nothing. Barbara reportedly commented, believe me, there were no guns in my house, with something like pride, because hmm. girl kept a nice house. <laughs> the next day, December 18th, 19. 86. 51-year-old Richard Kuklinski is charged with five counts of murder, six counts of weapons violation, three counts of robbery, and one count each of attempted murder and attempted robbery. The arrest followed a six-year investigation into the unsolved murders, led by Detective Pat Kane, who is a good detective. Snaps. Woo! 
All of the unsolved murders, Maliband, Mazgay, Hoffman, Smith, and Deppner, could be linked back to Kuklinski as he was the last one to see each of the victims alive. Kuklinski was held in jail with a $2 million bail, which his lawyer, Frank Luciana, called outrageously high for a man with strong ties to the community, a 25-year marriage, and three kids. What? I think it's perfectly appropriate. Yeah. Judge Peter Cialino upheld the bail and also ordered Kuklinski to surrender his passport after learning that he had large sums of money in Swiss bank accounts and a reservation for a flight to Sweden. Oh my God. In exchange for authorities not prosecuting Barbara for aiding and abetting, Kuklinski pled guilty to two of the murders. In March 1988, a jury found Kuklinski guilty of two murders under the idea that the deaths were not proven to be by Kuklinski's own conduct, meaning that he would not face the death penalty. I'm sorry. Why only two? Hasn't he killed, like, five hundreds of people at this point? Yeah, but they... I I don't think that they could actually link it to him. You know what I mean? Because... That's insane. They only started with two. And those two were with a stipulation, so he didn't get the death penalty. Overall, Kuklinski was convicted of five murders and sentenced to consecutive life sentences, making him eligible for parole in the year 2045... And he would be 110 years old. In 2002, Kuklinski granted an interview with forensic psychiatrist Dr. Park Dietz. The two spoke at length in a videotaped interview in 2002 about Kuklinski's early life, upbringing, crimes, and other notable events in his life. In one of the recorded segments, Dietz questions whether an incident of murder over a trivial sliding was justified. You can see Kuklinski experience a flushed moment of subdued rage. And hear this noise. Iceman would make this noise something like, if you remember Barty Crouch Jr. from Goblet of Fire, it's something like... So he had a tick kind of thing? When he would get really angry. At Kuklinski's request, Dr. Dietz explained that both nature and nurture played an important part in molding him into the infamous hitman who could function normally in other aspects of his life. Elaborating on this... Dietz explained that Kuklinski likely inherited antisocial personality disorder from his parents, which explains his disregard and violation of the rights of others. Dietz continues by stating that the abuse he claimed to have suffered from his father reinforced violence and prepared him for activities that required a lack of conscience and a lack of love. Dietz finally stated that Kuklinski also suffers from paranoid personality disorder, which caused him to kill people over minor slights or criticisms often long after they occurred. So it could be a week, or it could be three years. In 2003, Kuklinski pled guilty to another murder, the murder of NYPD detective Peter Calabro. In the winter of 1980, allegedly assisted by the now Gambino crime family underboss, Sammy Gravano, Kuklinski waits in the cold for Calabro. Kuklinski said that he parked his van on the side of a narrow road, forcing other drivers to slow down to pass. He laid in a snowbank behind the van, waiting until Calabro came by at 2 a.m. When Calabro's car approached, Kuklinski came out of hiding and blasted him in the head with a sawed-off shotgun, decapitating him. Kuklinski stated that he had not known that Calabro was a police officer at the time of the killing, but said that he more than likely would have murdered him anyway. In 2003, he agreed to plead guilty in exchange for testifying against Gravano, who was his driver for this crime. Kuklinski was given another 30 years for the murder of Peter Calabro. 
Over the course of his incarceration, which would have lasted until he was 140, Kuklinski granted multiple other interviews to prosecutors, psychiatrists, criminologists, writers, and television producers. In these interviews, he claims responsibility for 250 deaths, but Detective Pat Kane believes that he may have killed as many as 300 men before he was arrested. Okay, that's fucked up. Kane says he killed who he wanted, whenever he wanted. He didn't have a full-time job. That was what he did. Kuklinski reveled in his infamy, never expressing any remorse for his victims, except for that one where he said he shouldn't have done it that way. He said, I've never felt sorry for anything I've done other than hurting my family. I do want my family to forgive me. That wouldn't happen. Barbara continued to visit him in prison for a while, but mostly out of fear instead of out of a love or devotion to her husband. She took his reverse charge phone calls and sent him care packages, care in quotations. But as the children grew older, Barbara started visiting less. Eight years after his arrest, Barbara got a divorce and began Ooh, dating again. Good for Get you, girl. it. When HBO wanted to make their documentaries on Kuklinski, Barbara made sure to patch his calls through the film production office. Finally, during one phone conversation with Barbara... He said something ugly about the children, and she hung up. The fourth time he called back, she picked up the phone with a, Yep. Kuklinski started by saying, If you ever do that again. But Barbara cut him off, saying, What are you going to do about it, Richard? Do you realize now that there's nothing you could do? If you ever say anything against my children again, I will never accept another call. I love Barbara. Shout out, Barbara. Barbara, if you're listening. Barbara could be listening. I believe she's still alive. If you are, please... Hit us up. We love you. In October don't 2005. Hit, don't hit us. She wouldn't hit. That was maybe a bad way to. <laughs> Give us a ring. Don't there send you go. a hit out on us. <laughs> in October 2005, after only 18 years in prison, Kuklinski was diagnosed with Kawasaki disease, which Bless is an inflammation you. of the blood vessels. He was transferred to a secure wing at the St. Francis Medical Center in Trenton, New Jersey. In March 2006, Barbara took her daughter to visit Kuklinski, who told them that he was the victim of an assassination plot. Ah. Mm-hmm. Kuklinski told his wife, you're such a good person. You were always such a good person. Barbara said later, I will regret for the rest of my life that I didn't just tell him the bastard he is and how much I hate him. I wish the last words he'd heard had been how much I hated his guts. Oh, she's like super mad, and I love that journey for her. In the following days, Kuklinski's life began slipping away. He remained conscious long enough to ask the doctors to make sure that they revived him if he flatlined. Fuck that. But before leaving the hospital and her dying husband, Barbara signed a do not resuscitate order. As his condition worsened, the hospital called her to ask if she wanted to rescind the order. But she did not. Good for you, girl. A week later, Richard Kuklinski died on March 5th, 2006 at the age of 71. He was then cremated. Burn in hell. Can I wanted to know. Burn in hell. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was really amazing. <laughs> well, that's the end of his story. I wanted to know what happened to the remaining Kuklinskis. Mary Kuklinski has actually given a few interviews since her father's death. She is said to be of a similar height to her father, which is around six five, I oh, believe. Wow. She's a tall girl, but she's pretty soft spoken and a quiet listener. She said she has to compartmentalize portions of her childhood 
the good and the ugly. She said, quote, if you don't say it out loud, you don't have to deal with it. Once you say it, you have to deal with it. It's so true. It's true, but it's not a particularly healthy way to think. But it's fine. I get you. I get you, girl. I Whatever win. she has to do. Yeah. Do what you gotta do. Merrick actually has her father's ashes. When asked why she keeps his ashes, which she keeps behind a portrait of him, she said, I never really thought about it. I'll keep him until I pass on. She also has a small plastic shopping bag of what he left her, which includes a black binder filled with memos from Trenton State Prison, medical reports, envelopes of family photos, a list of his favorite songs, and a hand-scrawled list of several different poisons and their fatal effects. It also included several of Kuklinski's sketches, which were a drawing of rats gnawing on a corpse, a tattoo reading Grim Reaper behind the eight ball, a scene depicting a woman in a bikini praying to a black spider, and a self-portrait of his face bracketed with skulls. Barbara Kuklinski shares a small apartment with her younger daughter, Kristen. Oh, I love it. Barbara has said years later, Once I shopped at Bloomingdale's. We had a pool. I had the best of everything. I had a cleaner and a housekeeper. I wanted for nothing. If I wanted it, Richard saw that I got it. Now I worry about the price of paper towels, but I've never been happier. My husband is dead and gone. Chris and her boyfriend care for Barbara, who is suffering from arthritis. But at least girls survived. Oh, yeah. yeah, 100%. Chris runs a blog that gives readers insight into her mind, as well as updates on the remaining Kuklinskis. That's awesome. She says of her father, Yes, you can love and loathe a person. God, I'm I can't really believe proud we got of through you. it. You really just hit that research. That was a lot. You were not kidding, though. Guys, that's a shell episode. A shell episode. <laughs> oh, that's good. We I love the shell episode. So that was the story of Iceman, bracketed by the wonderful story of a survivor, Barbara Kuklinski. All right, so for our caboose today. I think we need to do a little bit of background before we ask our question. Yeah, yeah I don't know what so you're saying. Do you want to take it or do you want me to take it? You should take it. Okay. So recently, Shelby and I went to see Be More Chill. Which was They amazing. left me alone to work and die. <laughs> um, I wanted to see it for a really long time. It's actually closing on August 11th after only being on Broadway since March. Which, which is, is wrong. It's, it's wrong. definitely wrong because it was incredible. Um, but... Their cast features Will Rowland from Dear Evan Hansen and George Salazar, who's freaking awesome. Um, and there's a plot in the musical about something called a squib. Or is it a squib? I think it's squib. I think it's squib, too. I don't know what the fuck you're saying. Hold on. Like, m- we many- should probably just make sure. Yeah, it's a squib. All right. So there's a plot line in the musical about something called a squib. And what a squip is, is it, you take a pill and... That's from Japan. It's from Japan. And it implants a voice into your brain that tells you how to, quote, be more chill. So it gives um, you schizophrenia? Kind of, but well, that's it's... That's pretty fucked mm, up, guys. No, it's kind of like um, 
something in your head telling you what to do so that you can be cool in the eyes of your peers. Yeah. So it tells it you like, like what to do and say. It sounds like the plot of what is that movie with a awkward dude that plays in Project X. Is he in Project X? No, he's in. Pause it. All right. Um, okay. So the script that gets implanted in your brain that tells you what to do takes the form of a person who you think is like the coolest. So um, the lead character, Jeremy, his script looks like Keanu Reeves because he thinks he's super cool. He is super cool. Yeah. And then Christine, the female lead in the musical, hers looks like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, <laughs> which is really fucking cool also. Um, so our question for our caboose today is, who would your squip be? Like who Michael is Michael Sarah? Michael Sarah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I <laughs> if you like want to be less be... chill, then you can be <laughs> Michael Sarah can be your squip. If you're like way too cool, just like have him tell you what to do. Sorry. He's way too awkward. He makes you uncomfortable. Yeah, he would definitely not help you. No. In that aspect. What? But what about you, T? Um. It took me a while to figure this out, but I really want to say that my squip would be Patrick Hines because I think that you were kind of similar, but then he also is just so much more hilarious and funny. And I just think he would be really fun to be talking to me in my head all day. So yeah, I think Patrick Hines. And if you don't know who Patrick Hines is, go listen to True Crime Obsessed. You won't regret it. Okay. You really won't. What about I, you? I really thought I was going to say Ashley Flowers, but the more <laughs> I think about it, I think I would really love David Rose in my head. That oh would, yeah! If you don't know That's who David true. Rose is, get on Netflix right now and watch Shit's Creek, and you know, just call yes. out of work for the next few days. You he's played by Dan Levy. Oh, who Levy. I love, I love Dan him. Levy, I Levy, love Levy, Eugene Levy, Levy. I think you've said it every way you can say it. So okay. either way, <laughs> hey, contact us and tell us how to say your last name. Shit's Creek is awesome, though. You're right. But also, right. just contact me. <laughs> Sponsor. I love that journey for me. Because I love the wine, not the label. <laughs> I hate you. Okay, so I spent a lot of time thinking about mine. And I think that my idol, who I really want to hear, you know, talk to me and give me advice is Danny DeVito. <laughs> Should we just make it a rule that we have to mention Danny DeVito in every single podcast? Oh, my God, I dropped my phone. Danny DeVito's spirits are fucking you up. If, if we mention Danny DeVito... Every single time? Maybe he'll sponsor I think, us. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> he might he Maybe might he'll listen. sponsor us. <laughs> All right. Danny DeVito, I, I love really you. love your work. I love your work, Danny. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. Thank you so much for dealing with me. Stay thank tuned you. next week for Ed A Gein. mystery. Oh, it's, it's not a mystery. I said it. Shut the fuck it's up. Okay, we can I'm do it so again. Sorry. Can I end it with an Italian accent? Yeah. Yeah. So here's Shelby. Thank you for joining me for my podcast. Don't murder anybody. Don't talk to strangers. Tune in next week. Some fucked up shit. All right. Bye, Mom. Bye, Mom. Bye. Bye, Mom. This might be a really dumb question. Are these like literal drums? What the fuck? Do you mean like a drum in a band? No. It's oh a big, giant steel God. barrel. All right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so if you want to write, that's Tierney saying that. Um, you can reach us at deaddrunkcrime, is it? At gmail.com? No, it's deaddrunkpod.
You can reach us at deaddrunkpod <laughs> at gmail.com. Please write to Tyranny every time, every to tell her I've, how fucking dumb she is. Every time I've ever heard that from any case, I'm literally picturing like a drum. Yeah, but how would you make percussion there sounds a on a th- steel drum if it's not the there was Jamaican a 300 pound man in a fucking drum you think I that don't know how big you think drum that is. you think that nine volts short crying? is just rocking out <laughs> to a 300 pound man in a drum the people put on their tummies in the and why would the fuck that's 300 pounds well they don't if there's a, a guy doesn't have to be in it at the time that they're playing it i'm just saying like this is the most amazing miscommunication <laughs> i've ever heard um i found a dead mouse in my printer and screamed like it was the end of the world in your printer oh my god yeah at school in front of all my students and i literally you should check your fucking kids what why they did not put that mouse in the printer. where in the printer it was stuck like it like the paper kept jamming this happened like months ago when i was in my second graders and i opened the printer to unjam it and the little mouse head was like looking at but it was dead and i screamed (laughs) and they were all silent reading too i was really pissed at myself and then the psychologist came in and told us that we should go for a walk, and the janitor took care of it. And then now I was imagining today. something way worse. Yeah, I'm really sorry. It's fine. It's okay. It's still horrifying. What so the fuck? He just waited in a snowbank until this guy like eventually came. Yeah, he's Iceman. The cold never bothered him anyway. No, Sponsored I'm just by Disney. I'm just picturing <laughs> more Disney. Um. When in Beauty and the Beast, when Gaston's like, wait for them to come back, and he throws LeFou in the snowbank next to their house, and he's just standing, like, hiding in the snowbank waiting for them. Like, that's what I'm picturing. Now I'm going to think of LeFou with a sawed-off shotgun waiting. <laughs> <laughs> We're yeah. just, like, staying at home. We don't know who's in the mob, guys. Just staying home. I'm never leaving my house again. Takeout exists. Grubhub exists, but they'll eat, like, you know, one of every three orders that you make, so... What? You didn't hear about this? No. Grubhub and like like Deliveroo or whatever it is or anything like that, they admitted they did like a whole survey. One out of three meals that you get have been licked, have been eaten, have been like tasted at some point. Look it up. No. Yeah. No, What's... I'm not going to look it up. I want to eat my food. You should just go get it. What's Deliveroo? Should I download that one? <laughs> no, You're not at all concerned that somebody's picking your food. I have, I have all of the apps. I don't have Deliveroo. So I don't know what Deliveroo just, is. It's that just, one might have actually brought you some makeup wipes the other day. Oh, fuck. Honestly, I'm not going to lie. I'm pretty sure that's important. Please don't look it up. What do you mean? It's Deliveroo food delivery. Really? This is thing? So you thought it was porn? Yeah, I thought I saw it on a porn. Oh, Maybe God. there was just an ad. Deliveroo, star of porno. <laughs> wow. Deliveroo, if you're listening, please sponsor us. Sponsor.